MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the officially not on Spotify podcast, Clean Up on Aisle 45, (laughs) or at least we've put in for the request. It depends on how backed up Spotify is with (laughs) removing other people's podcasts. If you're listening to this on Spotify, uh, don't do that. (laughs) Yes, there's plenty of other places to listen to us. This is episode 56 for Wednesday, February 9th, 2022. I'm your co-host, Allison Gill. With me, as usual, is Andrew Torres. Ooh, always a pleasure. And of course, uh, before we uh, do anything else, we want to thank our new and returning patrons. So a big thank you to Kate Kiersis, Prospective Penguin, Derek R. Kentrup, Stephen Bowden, the mighty aardvark of the wonderful tongue, mm-hmm. <laughs> Kyle, Kyle Esposito. That's a different Kyle, right? Philly Basement Bar welcomes both OA and Aisle 45 live show 2020X, pandemic permitting. You pick what's on tap. Yeah, you're damn right we will. Uh, It's about hashtag Godleski damn time. We got rid of Ronnie Johnson. Message not approved by at Sarah for Wisconsin. Nice. Good plug. Nice. And also thanks to Perfidious Pete wasn't kidding about the Spotify thing. Thank you. Jamie Barnett, Stephanie Lynch, Paula Howen, Amber Cunningham, Jan or Jan. I don't know if it's a soft J, yogging. I don't know. <laughs> Renee Z, Jacqueline Selfridge, Singing in the Rain, Ing Indictments. Nice. Justin Huff and Scott Hammond. Are these all new patrons? Yeah, all new yeah. patrons from the last week. So. And thank you all so much. And thanks also, I don't know if you're if this is happening on OA, but it's happening on the Beans and Muller She Wrote. All these new patrons, every, I guess everyone who is kind of on the fence about whether or not to to uh, pledge, support us, uh, is now because of, because we're pulling the stuff off Spotify. And, and, you know, it's a little bit of a risk, but we thank you so much. You know, you literally make this show possible. If you want to hear your name, plus get the ad-free version of the show, plus goodies like Zoom Hangouts, where we sometimes do pub trivia. Um, <laughs> that was so much fun. <laughs> with, uh, with uh, you know, with both of us and uh, all the bonus stuff. You can do that at patreon.com slash aisle45pod and sign up for as little as a buck an episode. Woo! And now, uh, on with the show. All right. So, <clears throat> all right. It was all happy at first. Yeah. <laughs> the show. We can't have nice things forever. <laughs> we can't, it seems. Breaking news. <laughs> on Monday, the shadow docket 
in the case of Merrill v. Castor. The Supreme Court, by a 5-4 vote, reinstated the Republican gerrymandered map in Alabama based on race. That packs African Americans into a single one of Alabama's seven congressional districts and then cracks the rest, diluting black votes across six districts that range from R plus 32 to, and I swear to God, I'm not making this up, R plus 65. <laughs> I, I, I don't think I've seen that in a district before. So quick, quick math before we get to how atrocious the Supreme Court is. Um, African-Americans are 27% of the population in Alabama. Alabama has seven congressional districts. Two-sevenths would be 28%, right? So basically, this gerrymandering is cutting black representation in half in Alabama. Or I should say, keeping black representation at about half of what you might expect for minimal fairness. So look, no one is saying Alabama is a blue or a purple state, but these one and two vote riggings over time, over 20 deep red states add up. They really do. Uh, And 10 days ago, a three judge panel, the kind that are specially assembled under the Voting Rights Act, (laughs) determined that this map likely violated the Voting Rights Act, right? Section two, by discriminating against African-Americans. The panel ordered Alabama to draw a new map. Now, Justice I Like Beer makes a big deal of how the primary is seven weeks away, but maybe he's just too drunk to know that it isn't 1987 anymore yeah. with the right <laughs> software, and uh, any any one of our listeners could redraw Alabama's congressional maps in the time it takes you to listen to this show. Uh, states way bigger than Alabama have completed official full redistricting maps in two weeks. Yeah, so... Let's be clear about the procedural history here, because that helps explain why this is on the rightfully criticized shadow docket. So the district court panel's injunction required that the map be redrawn and enjoined the legislature against using it in the upcoming primary for which voting begins on March 30th. That's how you get the seven weeks. So what this Supreme Court decision does is a grant certiorari before judgment of any intervening court. Right. We're going to put a pin in that. And B, strike down the injunction so they can use the old map, right? So while you can definitely complete a redistricting map in seven weeks, you definitely can't brief argue and get a decision on the merits from the Supreme Court in seven weeks. So by definition, this map will be in place during the primaries, which will then be used to justify its use in the 2022 general election. So this is one more seat could go to an African-American candidate, will not. So all of that happens based on this procedural ruling, which is not a ruling on the merits. Without the Supreme Court saying that the district court got it wrong or right, they're not weighing in on that. Usually when you don't weigh in on it, you don't um, overturn their explicit findings, but that's effectively what this does. Yeah, yeah, definitely a shadow docket ruling. And Kavanaugh doesn't like being called out on that or beer. (laughs) Though he wrote a separate concurrence, just because, to grant the relief to criticize, and let me quote here, quote, the principal dissent, that Justice Kagan, uh, quote, catchy but worn out rhetoric about the shadow docket, (laughs) unquote, (laughs) Uh, by my count, this is the only uh, second time, second time she's used the term, so me thinks Brett protests too much. Uh, and although does he have does he have a history of, of really protesting too much to stuff? I, I mean, you know, he's he's pretty easygoing. <laughs> uh, and this, in fact, 
uh, is what the criticism of the shadow docket is all about, right? The Supreme Court just stripped black voters in Alabama of a hard-won victory under the Voting Rights Act in front of a three-judge panel specifically convened by law to evaluate these kinds of cases. And they did so without oral argument. Don't want to hear the merits. Don't care what your argument is. Uh, without anything other than five right-wing justices deciding to substitute their will for that three-judge panel. Yeah, I, reading Kavanaugh's dissent is like watching The Twilight Zone, right? Like courts, <laughs> I, it is. Courts are supposed to defer to lower courts on the facts. And here, the lower court uh, followed longstanding precedent uh, that, that's been set forth in a 1986 Supreme Court case called Thornburg versus Jingles, right? They heard a week's worth of testimony from 17 witnesses. They reviewed a thousand pages of briefing alone, right? Tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of pages of exhibits before coming to their conclusion. The, the opinion was so bulletproof that it, that it led... Drum roll, drum yeah. roll, please. <laughs> Chief Justice John Roberts, no friend of election gerrymandering claims, mind you, to write a separate dissent that essentially says... uh. What the hell, guys? Um, Roberts, intentionally or unintentionally, really casts light on the game here. He, he notes rather dryly that, quote, Jingles and its progeny have engendered considerable disagreement and uncertainty. That's code for the right wing doesn't like it. And that's what makes this a shadow docket case, right? Look, if the court wanted to consider whether to continue its sweeping activist mandate and overturn Jingles, it, like, that'd be bad. We would call them out for it. That's what they're doing, We're, you know, with Roe versus Wade. It's what they're doing all over the place. But at least do so after briefing, right? A at least give the lawyers on the other side a chance at oral argument. At least pretend like you care about the law uh, and do so on the merits. Um, by the way, that is all the Roberts dissent says, right? It says, I would have granted certain this case. And, you know, by the way, I'm not sure how you know, down I am for maintaining jingles. So don't get swept up if you see, again, the media reports cranking out about, you know, how much John Roberts is moving left. It isn't. It is that that the rest of the court is accelerating so far to the right that, uh, you know, Roberts staying in place looks yeah. like he's, he's moving left. Yeah, he's just sitting still. The rest of the court yeah. is going batshit. Yeah. Uh, and... I would be remiss if I didn't point out Justice Kagan's dissent does a brilliant job of telling mm -hmm. it like it is, stating publicly that Alabama's elections are unquestionably suffused with obvious and overt appeals to race, quote unquote. Yeah. Kagan's dissent picks two examples. Mo Brooks claiming the Democrats were waging a war on whites and Roy goddamn Moore, the horse, right? The horse guy <laughs> saying that civil rights amendments, you know, the 13th, 14th and 15th amendments to the Constitution, he swore an oath to uphold and defend and all that, that those quote, completely tried to wreck the form of government that our forefathers intended, meaning whites only. And yeah, to the extent that our forefathers also had uh, slaves. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they tried yeah. to wreck that. They tried to wreck that. Uh, and I have to say, Andrew, I know Roberts is a move right. If I were Roberts, I would retire from this shit show tomorrow. I'd be like, look, 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 I'm with you on a lot of this stuff, but I got to get the fuck out of here. I that's uh, you're the first person to say that. And I, I want to say that's not as uh, far fetched as it sounds. Right. Mm -hmm. When I've tried to figure out what motivates John Roberts, I have long said, right, we, we call it words like institutionalist or whatever. Legacy. I have long said, yeah, John Roberts does not want his grandkids 
to read about the most shameful Supreme Court in American history. And he knows he's about to preside over that shit show. He knows you can't corral these Trump judges. You can't stop Sam Alito and Clarence Thomas and the new gang from just riding as far to the right as you could possibly imagine. There is no way to preserve your legacy. If he were to do that again, there is zero chance that this would happen. I won't say zero that there's, you know, every every molecule in his body could quantum shift to the left. Who knows? Right. Like it. it I do not want to say that this is a a likely possibility, but I think you're on to something in that if you really want to be the kind of person that is revered in the history books, like, oh, my God, the, the way that that the media is salivating over Roberts occasionally writing a good decision, if he were to retire, I, they would put him on Mount Rushmore like it's <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it. and it's and it's also you know I mean there is a non-zero chance, but it's very 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 slim. But it's not just his legacy too, right? It's that he, from what I've read, and I'm not a Supreme Court expert by any means. Mm, um, don't don't sell yourself short. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, uh, but uh, you know I think he also is very. He's bristling at how politicized the court is becoming. He doesn't like a politicized court, I think, is is uh, He doesn't like something. it yeah, being out in the open like that. Out in the open, <laughs> yeah, right. You're, Publicly you're, politicized. You're supposed to say the quiet part quiet. Um, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I, I, I agree with all of that. I, yeah, I want to add just, just one more. I want to pull out that pin from earlier oh, yeah. um, related to the shadow docket. Uh, and that is the activist Roberts Court's disturbing precedent of granting certiorari before judgment. And they always seem to be in these political cases. So let me unpack that a little bit. So not only should this court have left the injunction in place, they should have waited for the ordinary appellate process to run its course, right? Instead, they granted certiorari before judgment. That means before the Fifth Circuit could even take up the case and kind of give its first level legal review. Um, And the reason to do that is to more quickly entertain radical arguments about jingles, maybe even trying to invalidate Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act itself, you know, following on the the, the Shelby County versus Holder decision. Um, The only reason to take this case that quickly is because you're champing at the bit to change the law. And uh, it, it is, let me explain how unprecedented this is. Before 2019, in the previous 30 years, the Supreme Court granted this kind of certiorari before judgment three times, right? And one of them was a very unique, all three of them were very unique fact patterns, right? Since 2019, they have granted certiorari before judgment 15 times. And all, you know what else is interesting too, uh, Andrew, and I just want to bring this up. I was scrolling through Twitter and you know, Joyce Vance, right? <laughs> Birmingham, right? So this this is this is her home turf here. She says it's also of note. One of the most interesting things here is that after the three panel ruling, no one in Alabama, the legislature, they didn't hire anybody. They didn't make any moves like they were going to need to redraw the maps. They didn't do shit because they yeah. knew they knew the that the shadow docket end. was going to come through for them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, all these hot button right wing political issues, DACA, affirmative action, 14th Amendment, citizenship. Uh, so-called religious liberty issues, uh, abortion, uh, and pending in 2022 affirmative action. Each and every one of these represents a right-wing court so eager to make new law. I can't even wait to overrule. 
uh, a circuit court of appeals. That's just uh, just calling balls and strikes, right? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, sorry to start y'all off with a bummer. On that news, though, we'll be right back after this break to discuss Trump fundraiser Tom Barrick. Stick around. Hi, I'm Francis Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of The Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Welcome back. As Allison teased before the break, we are back to talking about scumbags in service of the former guy. So in this case, it is Trump fundraiser Tom. I've always said Tom Barack. Is it Barrack? I don't know. It's Barrack, like it's living Barrick? in the barracks. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll call him Tom Barrack then. He was indicted in July of 2021 on seven counts. So two under 18 USC section 951 for failure to register as a foreign agent of the United Arab Emirates. And five, you're very familiar with this, 18 USC section 1001 false statement counts in connection with uh, Barrack's June 20th, 2019, voluntary interview with the DOJ and, you know, put the proverbial pin in that one. Mm, yes. So uh, Barrick here, he, I mean, this this was a pretty cut and dry case, although the, the previous DOJ sat on it, and that's going to be part of the argument, and we'll get into that in a minute, right? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, he was also at the head, of, worked with Gates, Rick Gates, uh, at, at, on top of the inaugural committee, the pick. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I've talked to Stephanie Winston Walcott about that, and there's been several stories about what went on in there. But that's not about this. That This case isn't about the inaugural. This is just about his getting stuff done for the United Arab Emirates uh, and saying, I, hey, I was just being a cool guy. I'm just a citizen. I wasn't a foreign agent. You can't call me a foreign agent. And uh, and so here we are. And he's got a buddy, a, a very young buddy who lives with him named Grimes, who's 28 years old. And uh, and then there's also a third guy uh, who's on the lamb, right? He's 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 a UAE guy, and, and so they haven't been able to f- to find him. But at the end of the day, this motion to dismiss strikes me as, uh, and and I sent this to you, Andrew, because I was actually kind of impressed. I mean, it's still <laughs> it's still terrible, but but it's not in crayon. I guess we're so used to going over like Sidney Powell filings and. And uh, motion filings from these uh, January 6th folks and Trump's legal team and the crack and strike force that, you know, when a bazillionaire gets to hire a really good lawyer, it put out some well-written shit. And so I I wanted to ask you if we could go over this today, because I wanted your thoughts on at least how well-written it is and that there are actual arguments in here that make sense and connect from one end to the other. But I still don't think these arguments would hold up or that this motion has a snowball's chance. Yeah, and I, I... Agree with that assessment, and I want to sort of hold off judgment in terms of whether it has greater than the proverbial snowball's chance. This is a competently written legal brief uh, that uh, plays into, I think, uh, uh, one 
it plays into one decent argument. I, one, think, I think I know the one decent yeah. argument. <laughs> one, I think. one reach of an argument and one thing that we're going to love talking about. So let's break it down. 18 USC 951. I'm going to write down what I think you're, what you okay, think the yeah. good argument is. And then, and then hold it up see. like yeah. a piece of paper. Great. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. So 18 USC 951 says, whoever acts as an agent of a foreign government without prior notification to the attorney general, uh, if required, shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 10 years or both. But I think it's fair to say that the law regarding when you're an agent is reasonably unsettled, right? And and Barrick points to the Bijan Kian case for help, right? And Kian, if you've forgotten, was partners with insurrectionist criminal scumbag Michael Flynn. Uh, and by the way, uh, Kian was also a secret unregistered lobbyist for Turkey. And he was convicted under 951 in 2019. Then he moved for an acquittal by the court, uh, which was then granted at the district court level, overturned by the Fourth Circuit in March of 2021, which then reinstated his conviction and his sentence. Right. So note that that's not a holding that helps Barrett. Right. It, because the Fourth Circuit upheld a conviction under 951, not reversed one. Right. But Barrett does have a decent argument. And if you read that opinion, starting at page 538, it says to fall within 951's ambit, a person must do more than just act in parallel with a foreign government's interests or pursue a mutual goal. An agent agrees to operate subject to the direction or control of that government. And Barrick's argument is basically that the UAE had no direction or control over him, so he couldn't have been their agent and therefore didn't have to register. Mm, I got it wrong if that's what you thought the strong argument was. I I think that that's an it, 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 it I think that that's the strongest of the three arguments. I know which one you've put on the paper because it's the one I can't wait for us to get to, and I just don't know how to evaluate the the, the probabilities around what I suspect is written on your piece of paper. Yeah. <laughs> so okay. hold on to it. Don't show it yet. Please. All right. I will. I will. Now the U.S. of course has to weigh in on on that issue, yeah. right? The whole nine fifty one issue. But what about right. the one thousand one statements? Uh, the way the way I read it. Uh, Barrick is arguing the Department of Justice had an obligation to record his interview so that there's some kind of objective record backstopping the 302 summaries that form the basis for these false statement charges in counts three through seven. This argument came up a lot in connection with the Mueller investigation, and they do point to a DOJ policy in Section 9-13.001 that creates a presumption that custodial statements will be electronically recorded. That's if you're a target and encourages the recording of witness interviews whenever the presumption doesn't apply, right? Yeah, that's all true. But I think this argument's weaker, even though it is a favorite of the Trump set, right? So the elements of a, of a Section 1001 offense are that the government must prove that the defendant, one, knowingly and willfully, that's a high bar, two, made a materially false, fictitious, or fraudulent statement. That's what this speaks to, is comparing the statement, right? Three, in relation to a matter within the jurisdiction of a department or agency of the United States, right, has to be relevant. And four, with the knowledge that it was false or fictitious or fraudulent. So the motion cites that policy, but admits, because it has to, again, because it's well written from a legal perspective, that there is no per se rule that requires a verbatim transcript 
of an interview or a recording as a predicate to bring an 18 USC 1001 charge. And I would point out that, look, lots of these testimonial crimes like perjury are often established on the basis of testimony about testimony, right? What one person says Tom Barrick said, right? Since the government still bears the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, you could raise the lack of a recording as an evidentiary issue at trial, right, rather than on a mm. motion to dismiss. And that's where I think the judge is likely to come out on this one. Again, we'll see what the U.S. says in response. But but you know, not yeah. a bad idea to put it in there, you know. No, no, no. <laughs> Might as well, you know, I mean, if you're yeah. going to put these other things, uh, you know, apart from the 951 argument. Now, of course, the real elephant in the room is that Barrick's allegedly false statements were made in 2019, and he wasn't indicted until July of 2021. Barrick puts that front and center on page 33, alleging the government waited two years, long after memories of the precise language used during the interview would have faded. That's what a 302 is for, dumbass. Yep. <laughs> uh, to charge Mr. Barrick with multiple felony counts premised on allegedly false statements. Now, we know why that happened. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah, <laughs> if line prosecutors had recommended a prosecution of Tom Barrick back in 2019, Bill Barr obviously <laughs> would have shut that shit down. Yeah. So as you might suspect, we think the last guy to occupy the office I now inhabit was a crook is not something that's been well litigated by the DOJ or anyone really. Right. So that that's what kind of makes this a win win if you're on the side of justice. here, Right. I, uh, look, don't get me wrong. I would like to see Barrick in jail just on general principles, right? But in the alternative to his motion to dismiss, this is on page 36, he's requested discovery on, quote, the reasons for the government's extended delay. Fucking sweet. Yeah. And so, yes, Barrick and his lawyers are feigning ignorance here. Like, there are howlers like, this delay is even more inexplicable given that the government's actions since Mr. Barrick's interview do not reflect any apparent concern that he was a foreign agent or national security threat, even though he traveled overseas more than a dozen times and continued to have access to the president. Right, right, yes, because we thought the entire DOJ top to bottom was run by a corrupt asshat who was going to protect political appointees and close friends of Donald Trump from getting indicted. Yeah, and if you want those documents, man, hey, bring them out. I would love to see why Barr didn't prosecute. I would love to see. Now, granted, that would probably be under seal and camera, uh, you know, like because it's a deliberative process or whatever the fuck. Uh, but it would be very interesting to see where anybody comes down on that. And, of course, you can see I've written down here on my on my paper. Oh, hold it up. Barr didn't prosecute. Yeah. So <laughs> under uh, if if this is uh, what was the game show where you wrote it down on the piece of paper and held it up? Oh, the um, newlyweds. Yeah. Newlywed game. So <laughs> <laughs> under newlywed game rules, I think uh, Chuck <laughs> Woolery would uh, rule on your behalf. Legal newlyweds. Barr didn't go. prosecute. What do you think is the number one argument? In the Wait. <laughs> <laughs> now, one other thing that I thought was funny that I wanted to bring up, just, just because I thought that this was, while written and, and spelled correctly with good yep. grammar, uh, they brought up this thing about the SF-86. They were like, look, look, look. In order to get a government job, you got to fill out an SF-86 form. It's what you turn in that says all of your disclosures and everything so they can do a background check on you. 
Uh, first of all, we know the background check situation that was going on in, in the White House at 2019, so shut up. Uh, but <laughs> the SF-86, and it says, and here's, here's a mistake, actually, that the lawyer made. This is for all you know, national security positions, hot, you know, no, it's not. It's for any fucking government employee. The file clerk at your VA has to fill out an SF-86. And they're trying to say that because he listed his contacts with United Arab, Arab Emirates, United Arab Emirates on, on the SF-86, that that should just count for uh, telling the government that you have had those contacts. And he wasn't trying to hide them, at least. Maybe that's a good argument uh, there. But to substitute an SF-86 for registering with the Department of Justice under the Foreign Agents Registration Act is, to me, laughable. Yeah, their characterization, and I'm glad you brought it up. I wanted to ask you about it. Their, their characterization is, right, in 2017, uh, Barrick submitted an SF-86. This application spanned hundreds of pages and disclosed Barrick's contacts with foreign leaders, including the very UAE individuals referenced in the indictment. Um, it, it is So I think what you're saying is this is just, you know, a form document everybody has to fill out and so it wouldn't have stood out in the way that you know filling out a a, a standard far registration form would have oh not that only right? that but the if if that if that were enough to satisfy registering as a foreign agent then the foreign agents registration act would say oh. or included on your sf-86 and you're good yeah. to go uh, but the SF-86 does not go to the Department of Justice. It just goes to the agency with which you're applying to. So I, I, my, I'm proudly, everyone, my SF-86, <laughs> one page long. Just want everybody to know, one page long <laughs> SF-86. I didn't have to disclose my fucking you're not, <laughs> you're, not a, you're not a foreign agent of uh, <laughs> well, some... Yeah. Anybody who's got a hundred page SF-86, maybe don't hire that person. Um, I'm just kidding. There's probably a lot of legit pages in there, I'm sure. But uh, anyway, yeah, no, you, you are required to fill out the SF-86 and also register with the Department of Justice yeah. because they aren't going to lay eyes on that unless you're applying for the Department of Justice. And even then... It's not the people who review that aren't in the FARA unit and wouldn't be able to make a judgment because it's going to be some GS9 yeah. running through paperwork looking for red flag terms or whatever. It's not going to be, you know, that's what the background check is for when you hand everything over to the FBI. So anyway, just wanted and to bring that up. That no, that, that, that is great. And from a legal standpoint, um, we disprefer readings of a statute that would render terms of that statute or the entire thing a nullity, right? And so if the SF-86 were enough to disclose your foreign contacts, then you wouldn't have a fair registration, right? The, the entire statute would be pointless because, as you pointed out, everybody to whom that applies would also have filled out said form. So Yeah, and everyone who, were, who goes to work for the government has to fill out an SF-86. Everyone. All right. So uh, with that, I cannot wait to see what the government has to say because their shit's due on February 28th in opposition. So we'll look forward to that. And I can't wait to discuss it with you. And uh, let's take a quick break. and We'll come back with comings and goings. All right. All right. 
Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. That's former CIA Director Leon Panetta. Admiral Carl Schultz, Commandant of the U.S. Coast Guard. Great to have you here, John Seifer. Errol Southers. Jefferson Morley. Admiral Mike Rogers. Chris Whipple. Anthony Clayton. John Mendez. You are a legend. That was the former Secretary General of NATO, Anders Fogh Rasmussen. Frank Figluzzi, welcome to Spy Talk. Law enforcement agencies are like elementary schools. This is an adapt or fail moment for the intelligence community. I think of these JFK records more as a mosaic. People turn away from the truth and they believe things that are completely rooted in falsehood. And for me, that is really dangerous. Follow the money. The possibility that Al-Qaeda had a stolen nuclear device in Manhattan. Probably some of the skills that make them good intelligence agents also make them fairly efficient as predators. Somebody left active, destructive pipe bombs outside Republican and Democratic Party headquarters, and we don't know who it was. Join us every Thursday for a new episode of Spy Talk, available wherever you get your podcasts. And as we teased before the break, it is time for your favorite segment and mine, Comings and Goings. And as we said last week, and I'm going to keep vlogging this every week until we get there, the biggest coming and going right now focuses on the impending going retirement of uh, Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. We haven't gotten any closer to a nominee, at least not in public. But last week, President Biden announced that he was expanding the team, advising him in connection with the nominee. Right now, this continues the trend post Citizens United, where it is not enough to be the president and control the Senate. You also have to mobilize against the fact that the right wing is about to spend hundreds of millions of dollars at minimum, possibly billions to try and demonize whoever that next nominee will be. Yeah, and they have they have plenty of money too. And I'm also concerned a little bit uh, about Lujan, Senator Lujan, having a stroke and be out for four to six weeks. Yep. Yep. Uh, and there's there, you know, I mean, I know the Senate is full of young, virile, uh, completely healthy people. Um, but no, I, I am very concerned that I mean, we're we're so close to yeah. to losing that fifty fifty majority for for many reasons other than the midterms, but. Uh, it's going to be easier, right, um, to do this, to to spend the millions of dollars, get the millions of dollars and attack because the nominee will be a black woman. So yep. we welcome aboard some familiar faces who will help run the interference against that barrage. <laughs> First up, of course, former Alabama Senator Doug Jones, ah, the reported runner up for attorney general. Jones will serve as the Sherpa Nomin- yeah. <laughs> nomination advisor for legislative affairs. And I love that they use the term Sherpa instead of czar. It's yeah. so much nicer. <laughs> it's so much more dem, right? Can we not call people czars? Stop. Uh, bringing in a moderate Democrat is part of the plan to help navigate the Senate confirmation process. He was, as you know, the first Democratic senator from Alabama in a quarter century and has a history of trying to be bipartisan. So who knows? Maybe he speaks cinema and mansion, although I'm not too worried about them. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I, I, I don't think we're going to lose either of them, uh, but it never hurts to massage their stupid feelings. And, uh, you know, we'll see. Also joining the team is a blast from the past. If you grew up in the 80s, legendary African-American activist Minion Moore, uh, who has been in politics longer than most of us have been alive. She was an advisor to the Jesse Jackson presidential campaign in 84, then went on to be deputy field director for my first presidential crush, Mike, the Duke Dukakis. Um, 
She then went mainstream in the Bill Clinton administration. She then she went was, number one with yeah. a bullet with the Clinton. <laughs> well, I mean to say she didn't only work for Dukakis, right? Like that's right, not right. that's that that part probably isn't highlighted think, as high on her. I think resumes. it's interesting she worked on the Jesse Jackson campaign too, because I'm wondering if she's the one that gave the green light for him to read Green Eggs and Ham on Saturday Night Live. That'd be fun. I uh, that'd be great. Yeah. The the, the question is moot. That was a great skit. So, <laughs> so good. Oh, <laughs> uh, so so, uh, yeah, long-standing power player in black politics, and she will serve as the nomination advisor for engagement, right? Her job is liaison to the base to keep them fired up throughout this process, throughout all of the slime and disinformation. And, you know, we haven't even talked about uh, uh, undoubted, you know, Russian meddling again not conspiratorially, but like we know from the Senate reports, like this is what Russian troll farms do. They look for key political moments and they just build fake controversy. So mm-hmm. uh, or they, yeah. they take the controversy. We create a little bit and then they drive huge and, wedges in there yep. to even split us. They, they will try to pit us Democrats against one another about these nominees. Mark my words. Yep. And that will happen. <laughs> yes, it absolutely will. Finally, joining the team as nomination advisor for communications is Ben LeBolt. And if you're a poli sci junkie like we are, you'll recognize him as former national press secretary. He's a guy who's been in communications roles for decades. Dude knows how to talk. He was Obama's Senate <laughs> press secretary and 2008 campaign press secretary. 2008, Obama press secretary for his campaign in 2008. Was that a... Z- Yes, you know, I don't, no one remembers that campaign, right? Just only the greatest campaign (laughs) in the history of the universe. A later deputy White House press secretary. His job is to advise the White House on communications. What a great team they've put together, by the way. And and messaging, right, around the confirmation process. And he also served in his role on the teams to confirm Justice Sonia Sotomayor and Justice Elena Kagan. So, you know, he's he's done this. and, and, you know, just keeping with the record of nominating superlatively, uh, you know, qualified people. Yeah. And, and so welcome aboard to the three of them. If you were looking and going, man, these seem like, you know, longstanding party insiders. Yeah, that, that's the point, right? These, these are the people who are going to be doing the hard work in the trenches. They are not setting policy. So, you know, I don't know what the Jacobin mag hit piece on Ben LeBolt is yet. It's coming. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but but feel free. Like these these are the people you want working for you to get the first African-American woman uh, appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court. So, yeah. Welcome and, and there's going to be those wedges again. I, I just a, a reminder specifically between progressives and moderates. Uh, between who this nominee will be, let's just all agree it's going to be awesome and support whoever it is, no matter what how left you are. I mean, unless you're like super left so that you're right. But you know what I mean. Yeah, I do. I do. So in addition to that, President Biden is still making federal judicial nominations to help, you know, mitigate the damage of four years of Justin's and Corey's from Donald Trump. Earlier this week, we learned that Stephanie Dawkins Davis would be the president's nominee to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, Judge Davis would be the first black woman from Michigan to serve on the Sixth Circuit and only the second black woman ever to serve on that court. Judge Davis has served as a federal judge on the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Michigan since December 2019. Previously magistrate uh, in that 
district from 2016 to 2019. And in case you're wondering, that's typical path that a white jurist might take, right? And again, Judge Davis had pretty good qualifications to get to the bench in the first place. She was an AUSA for two decades before serving as a magistrate judge. Yeah, and just absolutely incredible um, yep. qualifications, too. And finally, President Biden continues to fill out the executive branch despite Republican efforts to slow walk literally everyone. And today, we learned of two new ambassadors and one continuing appointment. So big hello to Ruben Brigitte. I love saying his name. <laughs> Nominee for ambassador extraordinary and plenipotentiary to the Republic of South Africa and Mary Kay Carlson. Nominee as ambassador extraordinary and plenipotentiary to the Republic of the Philippines. And thanks for staying to Elizabeth Shortino, currently the acting executive director of the International Monetary Fund, IMF. She's Biden's permanent nominee for the executive director of IMF. So cool. Yeah. Welcome aboard. Glad to see we are trying, despite, you know, massive headwinds to uh, keep this government functioning. Hello. 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 <laughs> what a wonderful word. Hello. Okay. <laughs> I am not going to try and sing, but uh, we'll double down on you. <laughs> what movie was that? Crazy People. Dudley Moore. Oh, writing wow, advertisements a... from a from a, a mental hospital. That is a deep cut. I was not a huge Dudley Moore fan, so <laughs> I just remember him with this Arthur, box of hellos. Right? You know, I love, love he it. Just is this box of hellos to hand you a hello, and then he would sing the hello song, and that's all he ever said was hello. That's a, such a great film. All right. It's not. It probably holds up terribly. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and you think probably... a Dudley Moore movie from the early 80s holds up well? Yeah. I, I, and I even I called have... it a film, didn't I? And uh, <laughs> that's funny. And it's probably oh. awful, awful uh, for, you know, actual mental health problems. Uh, so, you know, and, and me yeah. having PTSD, I'd probably still watch it and laugh, but also be like, oh, what the fuck? <laughs> All right. M movie night. We're going to pull a clip from it so that we can use it at the beginning of comings and goings. I'm, I'm totally on board with... Uh, uh, Dudley Moore singing the hello song. There. It's not Dudley Moore, fortunately. You don't have to oh, listen okay. to him sing, so it's good. It's better. All right. <laughs> anyway, what a great show. Thank you so much, everyone. Uh, thank you again to the new patrons. Um, seriously, it's because of you that I am have no fear pulling this show off Spotify. You know what I mean, Andrew? Yep. Uh, I do indeed. We thank you so much uh, and your support makes the show possible. You know all that. We love doing this and we love you and we love you more than everybody else. Absolutely, 100%. All right, until next week, everybody. Thanks. I've been Allison Gill. I'm Andrew Torres. Have a great week. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. <laughs>